Isaiah 40, verse 25. This is the word of Almighty God. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases in strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we thank you for this time we've had in Isaiah 40 this past month. We pray now that you would draw its message home to us and that it would be applied in our lives. Even in the darkest hours, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All these things we've been seeing in Isaiah 40 this past month from uh, the, the comfort of uh, the herald of the Lord coming to declare the king has arrived. As we know, John has come and the king has arrived now. Uh, to the, the message that this king is one who is the victorious warrior, who is also the gentle shepherd, uh, to the fact that he is also the creator, the one who holds the stars in his hands, the waters in his hand, who knows all the particles of dust in the universe, to the fact that there is no one like him, no human and no other God. All of these things drawn together ought to lead God's people to abundantly good cheer. Uh, When at Christmas we sing, God rest you merry gentlemen, Isaiah 40 ought to give us all the ammunition we need for that merry gentleman part, as well as the the rest part. Uh, But sadly, as we come to the end of Isaiah 40, we find that some of God's people are not of good cheer. Instead, they are despondent and even accusatory. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Now, in the the just two previous verses there, verse 26 especially, 
We see this emphasis on God uh, bringing out the hosts and calling them by name. And usually when we see that in scripture, it refers to the stars. So a way of talking about the entire universe. Uh, But I think he's making a point from the greater to the lesser here that if God has not missed one star, how should we think he will miss one child? Of his. One child on this little speck that goes around one medium sized star in a vast universe. He hasn't lost a single star. He's not going to lose a single one of his own children. And the response of some of God's people is to say, Well, he's misplaced us. He doesn't remember us. My way is hidden from the Lord. The the road that I travel day to day, full of difficulty and pits and darkness. He doesn't seem to know about my life. He doesn't seem to understand about my life. Or he doesn't care. He's absent at best in the affairs of my life. And then that second thought, My just claim is passed over. It's an even stronger statement. Not just that God doesn't know generally what's going on in my life, but that I've made a a legal appeal to him, the judge of the universe, for justice. And he's not even looking at my appeal. I'm appealing what's happening to me. Appealing the, the way I'm being treated. And he won't even look at my appeal. He refuses. What kind of good judge won't even look at the appeal before passing it over? This is the way they talk in their complaint. And and notice who the people complaining are. It's Jacob and it's Israel. If you're paying close attention, and this is one of the reasons I had Peter read the rest of the chapter with us this morning, instead of just relying on the past month of reading it, I want us to read it all in one place. One reason is because we have a change of focus here, don't we? Remember who is told to have comfort at the beginning of the chapter? It's Zion and it's Judah. It's the two southern tribes that have not yet in Isaiah's day, been taken captive by enemies. They still can boast, Yahweh has given us success. Yahweh is our security. We will not be defeated. We worship Yahweh at his temple on Mount Zion. A lot of those things are lies in Isaiah's day for the majority of Israel, uh, majority of Judah, because there aren't a lot of faithful believers in that day. But they still can make the claim, even if it's not true of them. But here in the end of the chapter, when, when he has made the claim, not one is missing to this God. Now he speaks as if the voice of the northern ten tribes, Jacob, Israel, who have already been taken into captivity. They have been led away by Assyria into Mesopotamia and other places there to be scattered among other peoples, also brought and kind of uh, blended together 
to make them lose their identities. These ten tribes have been long away from the promised land. Ritterboss comments, groaning under the condition of exile, reduced to despondency by years of oppression, they cry out their excuses to God or their complaint to God. And God's response here, why do you complain? Is the type of answer we would expect from a judge who hasn't ignored their appeal. Who hasn't just shoved the paperwork aside and moved on. God is making it clear in these verses that he has not neglected them, nor misplaced them. Their way or their road into exile was observed by him. Indeed, it was because he sent them into exile. But here, their complaint is that God has forgotten them, and no doubt they have a variety of promises in mind that he seems to have forgotten. He seems to perhaps to them have forgotten that Judah isn't the only tribe of Abraham's children. That God had made promises to all the tribes of his people. Or maybe they have in mind something like Psalm 1 verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And they say, but does he know our way? course they presume a lot there they forget how that verse ends the way of the wicked will perish oh they presume a lot about themselves and because they presume a lot about themselves they presume that god has broken his promise or has forgotten his promises they seem to also forget the the promises of deuteronomy that when they forsake god and worship other gods like the ones we thought about last week that he will send them into captivity they remember the promises they like and say god has forgotten those for us and they neglect the promises they don't like that's their complaint does it sound familiar or feel familiar to your own heart do sometimes we also have this feeling that God has forgotten us? That on the average day, I go through life and God isn't really actively fulfilling promises in my life. That he has perhaps blessed others and forgotten me. We look at our trials, our troubles, our pain, our loss, our grief, our emptiness, our despair. We feel adrift and confused and we, if not with words, in our hearts, make the same type of complaint as they did. God doesn't seem to know What's going on in my life? He doesn't seem to care. Or you look around and you think all the worst people are blessed. Well, 
Another year is swiftly passing away. And I wonder if it's easier to look back at this past year and remember the losses you've suffered and the pain you've had than it is to look back with joy at all the good things that have happened. Sure, that's not the case for some of you, but I'm sure for some of you, it's very much the case. For some of you, perhaps, you are already weary and it isn't even January 1st. Life feels exhausting because the promises of God feel distant to us. In this passage, we need to look at our God. Remember, that was what verse 9 told us to do. Behold your God. That's what we've been doing for three weeks, beholding our God. Four weeks, I guess, really, right? But now in this passage, it calls us, while beholding him, to hear him as well. What does he have to say in response to our complaint? He has two things he has to say. One has to do with the problem and the other with comfort. So as we behold our God in Isaiah 40, let us hear his statement of the real problem and his promise of comfort. There's the problem. And the problem God makes very clear in these verses is not himself. It's not that he doesn't observe us or he passes over our complaint. The problem is not him. It's us. Verse 28, God makes clear the problem is not him. The everlasting God, Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord, I am that I am. They really ought to remember that. They ought to remember that once, for 430 years, it seemed like God had forgotten Abraham's children. But he hadn't. And that after 430 years, by the way, which he told them was going to happen in advance, didn't he? He told Abraham that it would be that long. And after 430 years, God heard their cries. And he came and he squashed their enemies like a bug and led them out of captivity into the promised land. It's significant. It isn't always significant to us, but it's significant. It should be significant to us that he uses the Lord here. The everlasting God is the, is the covenant God who brought you out of Egypt. It's been a couple of decades. You think I've forgotten you. It's been a couple of decades. And you think I've passed over your complaints. But I'm the one that 430 years in kept my word. The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. The creator of the ends of the earth ought to be enough for us to say, 
not only as covenant Lord Yahweh is he going to do what he said, but as the creator, we ought to know he's able to do what he said. But in case we miss that creator means that he's capable, the verse ends, God says that he neither faints nor is weary. He hasn't forgotten us. And he's not going to stumble in his attempt to fulfill his promises. No, he will fulfill his promises. Furthermore, the verse concludes, his understanding is unsearchable. Meaning to us, it's incomprehensible. We can know this God because he has revealed himself to us. That's what Isaiah 40 has been all about. Behold your God. But in beholding him, we get but a glimpse. Isaiah 40, again, has shown us that he sits outside the universe. The, the kind of attitude which says, well, I got off of planet Earth on this little spaceship and I didn't see God anywhere. Which, which by the way, is just what the USSR put out about their cosmonaut. In recent years, it's come out that his quote was actually longer. And he said a lot about what he saw of God's handiwork. Uh, he was actually a Christian who made it up there uh, for the Russians. But, of course, the, the state didn't like that, so they you know, shaved it down. Didn't see God? Of course not. Because that's a mentality that's saying God is just bigger than planet Earth. He's in the universe and created this planet. But that's folly. He created the universe and he's outside of it. The heavens of heavens cannot contain you. Well, this God, the creator, isn't going to get weary or faint. But it should be obvious to us that this type of creator has a mind far surpassing ours. His understanding, his knowledge, the data he has. The information he has, having created everything that there is data about, is far beyond what we could ever imagine or or ever conceive of. We can know him because he reveals himself, but we cannot fully grasp all that he knows, all that goes into his wise plan. So when we look at our own lives and say, well, he's passed over my appeal, Why? Because we think there's a certain way it ought to go. And he isn't fulfilling what I think his promises ought to do. But whatever we might call wisdom in ourselves is nothing in comparison with God's knowledge and wisdom and plan. Heidelberg Catechism 121. I I came across this a week or two ago. I had Karen put it in your bulletin somewhere in there, I think. Um, It's in the section on the Lord's Prayer. And it asks a question I bet none of you ever thought to ask before 
unless you read it in the catechism and thought, hey, that's a good question. But just on our own, praying the Lord's Prayer, praying our Father in heaven. I, I would never have thought to say, why say in heaven? I, it's where he is. Right? But Heidelberg asks a question with this. Why do we pray in heaven? Why did Christ want us to do that at the beginning of this prayer? And its answer, Heidelberg's answer, is, is I think, quite, quite wonderful. It says, these words in heaven teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner. They're saying exactly what we've been thinking about for the past five minutes, ten minutes, however long it's been. One who is in heaven has understanding far surpassing our feeble little minds here on earth. Our Father in heaven necessarily knows far more than we. Our Father in heaven, in his majesty, is far beyond us. But then Heidelberg throws in that little comfort thought afterwards, doesn't it? That not only are we to not think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly manner, but we are to expect from his almighty power all things we need for body and soul. but we, we doubt his provision for body and soul. That's, that's the whole point of this text, isn't it? My just cause and my way are being passed over by my God. God is saying, the problem isn't me. And he is saying here, the problem's you. You are too little and too weak and too frail to understand your situation and to endure your situation on your own. Verse 30, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men stumble and fall. Why pick on youths here? Young men in their prime, ready to go off to war. Why pick on them? Maybe two reasons. The, the first those of you who are older probably will like better, and that is that Isaiah is picking on the cockiest of us, the ones who haven't learned better yet. And or, I think it's the and, if you're young, Isaiah is saying to you, no matter how strong you think you are, the strongest of us will faint and stumble. And if the youngest and the strongest, in a physical sense, stumble and fall, certainly all the rest will also grow weary as well, won't we? Those who have lived longer, lost more, stood beside more graves, endured more hungry, cold nights, more battles lost, more broken friendships and relationships. Certainly, 
these two will grow weary. Some of you know that from far too much experience. You may not think of yourself as young or in your prime anymore, but you've experienced enough that you know what it is to just be tired, worn out, weary. It's actually one of the reasons I believe in term eldership, as a slight aside. Because even young men stumble and fall. Slightly older elders sometimes need, need to step back because they're weary. It's a reality of being human. And God is saying to all of us across the board, you're the problem. You are weary of the situation. You're weary of the warfare. You are weary of waiting on me. You're exhausted thinking that I'm never going to come. You're just tired. You've had enough of this faith thing. The problem isn't God. The problem is that we are too weak in our own strength. Too weak to endure living in Babylon. Too weak to put to death that sin that so easily entangles me. Or those sins that so easily entangle me. Too weak to run the race with endurance anymore in the pursuit of holiness. Too weak to patiently endure persecution for Jesus' sake. We complain, but we are the problem. We sinners have no just claim before God. On our own. Isn't that so ironic that we say he's passed over my just claim. My just appeal. Like like a murderer complaining. They wouldn't take up my appeal. If you know that you've committed the crime. And complain because the court won't take up your appeal. That's what God is putting before us here. You, you are too weak. You don't have a just claim unless, of course, your claim is another. Unless your claim is Yahweh, Christ, the one who brings his people out of their Slavery by his own precious blood. We are the problem. But there is also comfort in this passage. And the comfort that God puts before us is that though we fail, we are not strong enough. 
Nonetheless, there is comfort for all those who wait on the Lord. Not just Judah. I I think in this series on Isaiah 40, the other preacher preaching at one point made the comment that Isaiah 40 serves as kind of a table of contents or an outline that then can be put across the rest of the book of Isaiah from 41 onward of, of what God is going to say. And I think that is certainly true. That is certainly true when it comes to this interplay that God speaks directly through Isaiah to Judah and then he'll take a moment to speak comfort also to the tribes already in captivity. There are several chapters you can go and look, read the rest of the chapter, 41 through the end. A lot of comfort in those passages. And it goes back and forth between Judah and Zion and Jacob and Israel. God is declaring to them that his promises and his comfort can be for them as well. He says here in verse 29 that he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he shall increase strength. You're the problem. You're too weak. But I'm the God who gives strength to the weak, to the pathetically weak, to the weary. He is the one who has sympathy to those who are weary and heavy laden. He gives rest. He is the one who takes the sick and the broken. And gives them life and health. He is the one who goes to those lost and ruined by the fall. And displays comforting sympathy again and again and again. There is comfort. Not only for Judah. But for Jacob. And for us. But it's a comfort that requires us to remember. It is his understanding that is unsearchable. So much of our complaint comes in because we say, you say you give strength, but I didn't have strength for. Or I didn't get the outcome I wanted. We forget that he gives strength. To endure and to engage in exactly what his plan calls for. So I was trying to think of specific examples here. I'll give a somewhat general example and then a specific instance of thinking through this. Uh, Perhaps better to say thinking through our inability to comprehend this. The ways of God which are comforting Um, One is healing. When we think of faith healing, what is so often the complaint? You didn't heal. We prayed and you didn't heal. You ignored our request. 
We did what the New Testament tells us to do, maybe. We called in the elders, and they uh, uh, prayed over, maybe even anointed with oil, this, this person, and prayed over them. And no healing came. And we forget, we forget his unsearchable wisdom. His unsearchable wisdom, which works all things for the good of his people. Now, sometimes the good of his people, the best for his people, is that he gives them the strength to endure pain so that they might grow closer to him. Sometimes the best for his people is that he gives them the strength to endure even to death that they might be with him. Those of you who were uh, with me in Sunday evenings earlier in 2023 might remember we, we read a passage where the son of a very wicked man, a young son, we don't know how young, but if not an infant, probably a toddler, found favor in the eyes of God. And so God took him home so that he wouldn't be alive when the complete slaughter of his household took place in judgment. Now, our brains can't get around that very easily, can they? That it is the graciousness of God which took that child. And yet that's what scripture tells us. So we look at things like healing and we have a hard time. It looks like God didn't answer our request when really he might give the strength needed for exactly what he desires, that we endure tribulation, suffering, and hardship for his name's sake. Maybe we endure as faithful soldiers of Christ, so that someone looking on would see our faith in trial and come to Him. And then the working all things for the good of those who love Him is working your suffering for someone else's good. Is that worth it? Well, in and of ourselves, none of us have the strength to endure suffering for that reason. (laughs) In and of ourselves, we would say, no, I I want relief from the pain. But he gives strength so that others might know his grace. Or there could be any number of other reasons. We don't know the knowledge and the wisdom of God, which is unsearchable. But we know, we know the comfort that he is the one who gives strength to the weary. Or a more specific example, I was thinking about how our brains have a hard time getting around God's plans. And here's one that we still maybe can't get our brains around and still can't figure out where it's going. And that is abortion issue. How many of you, if I'd asked you five years ago, Will Roe versus Wade ever be overturned? How many of you would have said never? 
no way that's happening in our country. I, I think I would be in that camp. Oh, that's never going to happen. Five years ago, if I'd been asked that, though, I think I would have had kind of this mentality. But if it could be overturned, that whole problem's going to be resolved. The finite nature of my mind, right? Because Roe versus Wade has been overturned, whether or not I thought it was possible. And a lot of hardships have come about because of that. A lot of lives have been saved. But our friends at Alternatives and a lot of other places like that have suffered a lot because of that. Now, I I think they would all say, totally worth it. But we still don't know. What's the future of Alternatives? We support them as a church. We want to be more involved in supporting them. And for a year they've been saying, don't give us any money. We don't know what's going to happen. We still don't get it. What's God's comforting plan in connection with that? We don't know. Alternatives doesn't know. But we do know more than we did five years ago now. We at least know that God's plan included something that to us might not... I think I unplugged that. Might not have ever seemed possible or made sense. But we need to think about a lot more things like this. God is saying, I'm not the problem, you are. He's saying, but there is comfort. But it's my comfort on my terms. And you might not be able to understand it. So what do you need to do? Who gets the comfort? Who will have strength given to them? Those who wait on the Lord. What does waiting on the Lord mean? Waiting on the Lord means those who have faith, who live by faith. I I like how Westminster talks about faith, because sometimes I think we, we think about faith as a moment in my life. I believed, and I was saved. That's a wonderful thing. There's no salvation unless you have faith. At some moment. But it doesn't stop there. Here here how Westminster Shorter Catechism defines faith. Faith is receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. So it's not only receiving him as Savior and Lord, but it's resting upon him. Let's be honest, when we question God, it tends to be in times when we are not at peace and rest and waiting. We're in turmoil. We think we're going to fight the battle on our own. It's exactly what leads one of the number one things I hear when I'm meeting with people regularly for counseling. And we get together and I say, so... How has it been since our last meeting? And they say, well, you know, I was doing really well for like two weeks. And then, and they talk about, you know, stumbling and going back into their sin or whatever. The gauge for how it's going is me doing things. 
That's very different from when people are resting on Christ. By faith. Waiting on Him. Lord, yes, I stumbled today. I stumbled. I'm the problem. I'm weak. I'm sinful. But, but, He is working in my life. I'm resting on him. He is giving me strength to soar as on eagle's wings. Dear friends, a new year arrives. And and I don't know what lies ahead of us in this year. I don't know what lies ahead of you in this year. I suspect it will include loss and grief at least for someone in this congregation. Disappointment for all of you. Hopes deferred, which in in the midst of hope being deferred feels like hope's just lost, isn't it? It hasn't gotten here yet. Hopefully this next year will include a lot of joy. But it will certainly, certainly include conflict living here in Babylon as we do. It will include pain. And it will include persecution for righteousness' sake for all who wait on the Lord. A new year is upon us. Times change. Epochs come and go. This God, this Redeemer, the beginning and the end, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither grows weary nor will he be faint in 2024. Lay your weariness at his feet. Bring your brokenness before him. Cry out in the midst of this culture's pressures, perversions, and persecutions. And wait. Wait on his timing. Wait on his perhaps incomprehensible answer to your prayers. Wait knowing that he will not always give you the earthly victories that you want. But that as you wait, he will give you the strength to endure by faith until the end. When Christ returns and all things will be made new in the new Jerusalem, prepared by Christ himself, For Judah, for Jacob, and for Gentiles like you. Wait on him, the captain of your salvation, knowing that in him you have received the Spirit who works in you the strength to pursue sanctification this year, to pursue holiness despite its unpopularity here in Massachusetts in America, in this world. 
Wait on him and remember what he will promise just a few chapters from here in Isaiah 40. That all those who wait on the Lord shall never be put to shame. Wait on him. Let's pray.